0: This is Lisa Kastner. I am the executive editor and founder of Running Wild Press. I am here today with Tone Milazzo, who's one of our fantastic authors as a part of the Running Wild Anthology of Stories, Volume 2. So, Tone, thank you for being here.
1: It's a little weird being on the other side of these.
0: It is, right? (laughs) (laughs) Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: I always wanted to be a writer of some form. I just didn't realize it. When I was a kid, I wanted to be the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics to, to direct the control of the company and not actually write. In my mind, editor-in-chief was somehow easier. I'm not that ignorant anymore. As I grew older, I still wanted to write, but I wanted to get some life experience first because I knew that I didn't have the, the scope of experience to write effectively. So I joined the Marine Corps and then, for better or for worse, after I got out of that, the video game industry was coming up. So I was like, oh, well, there I get a chance to, to do some storytelling about working in that industry. And, By the time I graduated college, I knew enough people who had worked in the industry to know that they don't treat people very well in that industry. So I didn't want to be a part of that. Gradually over the years, I wound up doing accounting software and that was not creatively fulfilling. I set about starting the writing career again. I pitched some comic book projects, but to pitch a comic book project, you need an artist on board, which is really difficult. This is sort of as the early days of internet. And now it's really easy to get in contact with an artist. But back then, it was really difficult. I managed to get Uh, one artist to work with, and we pitched a series called Seize Him, Confessions of a Hired Goon, about a gang of professional criminals who made a career being henchmen for supervillains, but that didn't go anywhere. At this point, young adult was really coming up, and I had been reading fantasy novels most of my life, and there was a lot of common tropes in these fantasy novels that I was tired of seeing. An orphan, blessed with a destiny with the help of a mentor, takes up the magic thing and fights the elemental evil. Instead, I turned into a kid cursed with a fate, and an unreliable ghost turns to magic to find a father who turns out to be a bad guy.
0: Wow, that's fantastic.
1: Thanks. And that's picking up the ghost.
0: So can you tell me a little bit about your story in the anthology?
1: Sure. So The Ginger Jar is, again, following up the same character, Sink Williams. I wanted to write a couple short stories featuring that character as a way to, to build more of an audience for the book. It's still available. When a book's been out for a while, you feel kind of silly doing book signings or book tours or something like that. But writing short stories featuring that character and then adding your, your tagline at the end saying that, that hey, there's, if you like this, there's more out there. That feels a little bit more dignified.
0: I guess you don't want to reveal too much about the
1: story. I can talk a little bit about it. It's basically a, a young urban shaman versus a genie who has set up shop in a crack house.
0: That's unique. And what like inspired you for that?
1: Well, it was always a dream of mine to rip off an episode of The Twilight Zone. I boiled it down to what I really liked about this episode that ends up being the twist at the end. And you remove all the other elements but replacing them with something similar. So in this case, say demon, and you turn him into a genie. And I looked at genies in pop culture, and I found one in Oz. He was called the Red Genie, and he lived in a ginger jar. A lot of his imagery of the genie I have in this one is from that character. So he's got the piercings in his ears and the red color and the fact that he lives in a ginger jar. Mine is much more creepy and, yeah. uh, and hostile yeah. than the one in the Oz books, of course. But
0: Yes, absolutely. So what are you working on next? Are you continuing the storyline or this character?
1: I'd like to revisit him occasionally in short fiction from now on. Originally, I was planning on a trilogy, but my agent is out there with my second novel. It's called The Faith Machine, and that's a psychic espionage book. Oh, wow. It's inspired by the John Ronson book on psychic warfare programs in the Cold War. And this is a nonfiction book, The Men Who Stare at Goats. They made a movie out of it a while ago.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm very familiar. I love that movie, by the way. It's hilarious. Although it's true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it was an opportunity for me to to use some of the the superhero tropes. But if there were people with superpowers, how would you get away with it? You know, because if whenever there's a new power on the scene, the the existing powers will do what they can to squelch it or co-opt it. So... My first thought was everybody with some sort of power has to stay on the down low and be sneaky about it. And then that blended nicely with the espionage stuff. And then I've got a comic book project, which the elevator pitch for that is Seven Samurai. But instead of Swordsmen, it's Undead Women. A vampire, a ghost, a bog zombie, a skeleton, etc. And that one's out there. I found an artist, Nadine Schultz, on Reddit, of all places. And she's drawn up the first six pages, and I hired a colorist. Caitlin Quirk, and a letterer, Qun Tang. And we've got Enough to Approach Publishers With.
0: Wow, that's fantastic.
1: So my agent is also has that going out there. Although I love comics, I really do feel like the 22-page monthly, its days are numbered. And I honestly don't have the... I do not want to self-publish a monthly comic book. I've I've seen people who do that, and it seems like a, a hectic process of dealing with a printer every month
0: yeah and um, it seems like graphic novels are becoming more and more the rage at least right now which in, in oftentimes it's actually just a culmination of multiple comic books that were brought into just more of like a condensed format
1: mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah there's 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 basically two ways to do it right you collect a bunch yeah. of issues or you write for the trade.
0: Yeah, and actually, one thing that Running Wild Press is interested in getting into is graphic novels. But our challenge has been finding artists who would be willing to work with a small press. So,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I generally, I find artists really are interested in getting paid page rate upfront. Exactly. Yep,
0: that's right. <laughs> yeah, I actually another press that's also relatively new. They are putting out like a. a the next story of um Alice in Wonderland, and the artist is a huge fan of the original Alice in Wonderland, so agreed to do it at some ridiculously low rate, mm-hmm. so so yeah, it can happen, uh but yeah, graphic artists like to be paid up front,
1: yeah. I don't blame them. They're worried about running into a situation where they do a bunch of art and then the publisher disappears. And if I'm a a writer and I've written my story and then the publisher disappears, well, I can just take it to another publisher. But if you're you're an artist working on commission, you've just done all that work and there's no way of repurposing it. So why don't I flip this around on you? Uh, Tell us a little bit about the history of running Wild Press. What made you decide to get into the wild and woolly world of publishing?
0: I've actually been in the writing and publishing world for about 15 years, and uh, I used to run a writer's community in Philadelphia that attracted students and instructors from all over the East Coast. I was the president of an organization called Pen Writers. I've been published in various magazines and journals and at one point, I was one of the editors for a small online journal called The Piccolata Review, and we published a small, small short story that became Jamie Ford's "The Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet," which is a worldwide phenomenon. And I've been, i been—I was very honored that Jamie actually thanked myself and the primary editor. Mark Pettis for publishing that short story. Jamie's a fantastic person, as well as a great author. So because of all the places I've been and the things I've been a part of, I have had the opportunity to read tons and tons and tons of amazing stories. And I started noticing that among the stories that I've read, I'd read ones that, in my opinion, maybe it needed a light edit, maybe it needed a little bit of a direction in terms of concept but nothing major, right? Just a slight course correct. And you could publish this and it would be great. It would be, in in my mind, it was a bestseller. I would tell the authors this, like, hey, you you could do X, Y, and Z. This would be amazing. You should send it out. And they would. I follow up and I would find out that it wasn't that the story wasn't good. It wasn't that the writing wasn't great. It was that it didn't quite fit neatly in whatever box of that publication. And I was actually experiencing the same thing. And I actually, I have an MFA. I've written about four books and one memoir, as well as tons of short stories. And I would send out my manuscripts and they would get turned down. And it was typically, I love the story. I just don't know where to put it on a bookshelf. I don't know what house to sell it to. I would also get the same feedback from mentors of mine. They said, this is great. Your timing's just off wait a little while, and then send it out again. It's just that the market's not ready for it. I heard that enough, and I saw enough great stories that I thought, you know what? I'll make a place where those stories that don't fit neatly in a box can find not only a home, but find readership. And that's what started Running Wild Press. We started two years ago, actually a little, a little slightly more than two years ago. And as a way to find authors, we targeted different groups online that we knew already had a decent number of solid writers in it and just said, open submission, send us anything, narrative poem, short story, nonfiction, but like short story length. And that for us was a way to find multiple authors that possibly if if they chose, and if we chose, we could have a longer term relationship with and continue to publish their stories. In two years, we've already put out seven books, two story collections. I call them story collections because they actually do include nonfiction, fiction, and narrative poems. One anthology, one single author story collection, and two novels. And we already have a catalog that goes out to about 2021. It's not complete uh, because we basically target around between five and seven publications per year enough to drive me and my staff crazy but not enough to hopefully give up on quality if that makes sense
1: absolutely so this anthology in particular goes all over the place as far as genres go you know, there's a uh, i would say about 50 percent genre fiction either like fantasy or, or has a fantastical element to it given that that genre isn't a tangible thing is that is that a challenge then in when it comes to the marketing phase of these books
0: So interestingly, no, for the specific anthology. So as you know, because you submitted the Ginger Jar, it was open, any genre, and any form. And no piece is actually solidly in a genre. So for instance, your piece is, it has, it's fantasy, but it's also kind of a mystery. And it has some horror elements to it. You also write a little bit more on the literary side because you're heavy in description which is great it's needed for the emotive aspects of the piece and you could also argue that it's young adult but due to the ending i think you would have had a hard (laughs) time actually positioning it as a young adult piece which anyone listening to this read the story you'll understand what i mean (laughs) so just the ginger jar itself i mentioned what five genres six Mm -hmm. that it really does encapsulate Every single piece does that. Every single story in the anthology crosses at least two genres, for lack of a better term. And what I found is that, so my job as the executive editor is to take the, all, like, I accept the pieces that I think are good, period, and that don't fit neatly in a genre. And if it does fit neatly in a genre, we turn it down, but we tell them what their genre is, because some people don't know believe it or not. And then my job is to structure the overall collection in a way that will keep readers engaged. The first story is typically almost like a flash fiction piece so that you have an immediate hook. The reader reads it and says, wow, that was cool. I want to keep reading. And then from there, my goal as an editor is to holistically provide an emotional journey for the reader. It may not be an arc of an emotional arc of excitement, fear, love, fulfillment, which would be actually kind of a a, a nice, neat arc, emotional arc. Intentionally structure it so that you're going to keep having highs and lows throughout it. So when you're done reading the entire collection, you'll say, Wow, I went on a ride. This was a really cool ride. We also intentionally do it so that the reader is going to sit there and say, you know what, maybe I don't love genies, so I can go to the next story and I'm still going to get fulfilled. Like someone handing you a box of chocolates or a box of candy, you can try one and say, I like this, but I'm not sure it's my thing. I'm going to go to the next one. And you're still going to find fulfillment within that collection. But yeah, interestingly, what we've actually gotten is a lot of people coming back to us saying, I loved all these pieces. There wasn't a single one I didn't like. And they were exposed to story structures or genres that they maybe wouldn't have considered elsewhere.
1: Obviously, we're here selling the collection, but I, I mean sincerely that I really enjoyed every story in this, whereas I'll, I read a lot of uh, collections where you know, there's some stories where you're like, nope, not for me, skipping over that one. Yeah. I, rare, I rarely, even even if it's by a single author, an author that I like, you'll find yourself going, oh, that one's not so good. But everyone in here really shined, so congratulations on that.
0: When we accept a piece, we ask, are you willing to collaborate with the editor? And the reason we do that is there hasn't been a piece yet that at least didn't need a light line edit. And some authors are very married to what they submitted. And it may be because they're not used to working with an editor or a concept editor or whatever the case may be. But we want to make sure that the end result is something that it's all of the same quality, the voices are very different. The stories are very different. The styles very different. But the reader comes away with it saying, I don't feel this felt even to me. I got an even level of fulfillment and, and quality of story, no matter what page I flip to.
1: Well, I guess I kind of understand where the authors who are very protective of their work are coming from. But you don't get better that way. You need another pair of eyes to look at it. For The Faith Machine, I had my my regular workshop where we met once a week. Then after I processed that feedback and finished the whole thing, I had another workshop that read the entire thing at once. Then I ran it past my wife's book club for feedback, and then I hired a freelance editor. And even after all those stages, the freelance editor... In the development edits, she's found 17 instances of people crossing their arms for no reason. That was my go-to gesture for people. So that's after 18 people's input, there's still stuff to find.
0: And uh, sometimes it's a p- the feedback that's provided is opinion. What I mean by that is, so Tori Eldridge, whose piece, Life After Breath, was also wonderful. The original piece that she sent, the best way I can explain this is, and this isn't uncommon, so I'm not picking on Tori. I could tell it had a lot of different readers because there were parts in it that it was obvious she was addressing someone's question that may <laughs> not have been asked within the piece, if that makes sense. To me, my job as the executive editor is to read it and say, where are the extraneous tree limbs or where are there like dead leaves or to the editor that you had hired's point, where is their extraneous description or d- extraneous storyline that maybe doesn't go somewhere and if it's extraneous description or like a repetition because that's actually really common too for longer pieces because most workshops you can't submit a hundred page novella you're going to submit a 15 pages here 15 pages there 15 pages there you end up having references to backstory in multiple spots because they don't remember what they read 45 pages ago. When you get in front of an executive editor or your editor, they're looking at the whole thing and saying, why are you talking about the lost wife on page 30, 38, 50, 72, and you're basically in a different way providing me the same information. I only needed it the one time. Sometimes because as an author you to your point you've seen it so many times you don't even realize you're doing it
1: I mentioned before that I did the weekly workshop and I we were running into that problem where we were having to remind people of something that they had saw six months prior
0: yeah exactly
1: if it was a reader reader they would have seen it a week ago and it would have still been in their mind so I will not be doing that sort of one chapter a week workshopping again
0: so in my own experience I had a workshop leader I'd gone to breadloaf it's like the grandfather of all writers' conferences. And a leader, one of my workshop leaders, said he never workshopped at any piece he ever put out there. Jeez. And by the way, he's a PEN Award winner. He's brilliant. He does all all, all alternative fiction, like all um, experimental. And I thought that was really interesting. His comment was, well, my relationship ends up being with my editor in the end. So. His wife might read the piece, who's also a writer to be candid, but he doesn't take it to a big group of people. And what I found is that through the years, I have a few people I really trust as readers and those people I'll have read things. I'd say 90% of the time, their feedback is something that I knew somewhere in the back of my mind because I'm a writer too, as well as an editor, but for whatever reason, I didn't address it in the piece. I get not putting it in front of multiple workshops because you're going to get different feedback depending on who it is. So I've been to Yale Writers Workshop a few times, which is wonderful. If you ever have a chance to go, you should definitely do it. And observed a panel with the editor for The New Yorker. And a question came out about advice to new writers. What she said was they publish they publish stuff that's submitted through the slush pile as well as pushcart prize winners and... Pulitzer winners and all that. And the most difficult people she ever had to work with were new writers. Margaret Atwood would submit something to them, and this editor would do a thorough edit, send it to Margaret Atwood, and Margaret Atwood would come back and say, I accept all edits. Boom. The same would be true for all the professional writers. But then she would get a new writer, or maybe the writer, the professional writer, right, the one who's, you know, iconic, I guess, might come back and say, this part is important because blah, blah, blah. And for this editor, that explanation meant the world. Okay, I get it. Or that didn't quite come across. How can we make that work if that's important to you? So again, it was a dialogue. Her greatest challenges were with new writers who were so married to the story that they would argue changing a a sentence from passive to active. I have found that to be very true. I think 95% of all of the writers that I've had the blessing to work with, including yourself, have been great with collaborating. Because as you know, I do both a concept edit and a thorough line edit at the same time. And I ask leading questions. I want to understand your perspective as the author of the piece, but I also want to understand if this is key to the story, because maybe it's something that was key 20 revisions ago, but in this new storyline or in the most recent storyline it's not as important and so maybe it's not needed
1: if that makes sense oh it makes sense yeah i in my first novel i had a whole like portal fantasy phase and i had to cut it nobody liked the portal fantasy phase but oh, occasionally wow. references to the halfway world would come up in the dialogue and i missed one all the way up until i got to the uh Chizine editor And she's like, what's this halfway world? It's like, oh, that's not supposed to be in there. Ignore that.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's the kind of questions you may get. So I I do understand when someone, because especially if you've been writing something for a long time and you have trusted readers and you feel like they're your family. So to have an editor come in and say and challenge things can feel very personal. The reality is my job as an editor is to help make sure this is going to be the absolute best story possible in that writer's voice and with that writer's story my job is not to change dramatically change the story unless you're using cliches a lot then i'm not a dramatic change but i'm going to point out hey this is a cliche is there some other way we could position this or is there some other path we could take this so that it'll be more engaging for the reader because in the end of the day that's what we all want we all want readers who are going to read this and say oh my gosh this was fantastic. Amelia's story about the, her new take on King Arthur. I love the inclusivity of it. I mean, her writing's beautiful as well, and it's a great story. But it was so unique that she took different elements that I don't think I've ever seen put together before. Meaning a point in history, the types of characters, even the plot line. The plot line alone, yes, bully. everybody has a bully, right? There's been tons of bully stories, but the way she did it was so unique that it was like, how could you not, how could you say no to this? So yeah, the end goal, always, 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 we want to make the readers just have a fun ride, so.
1: Well, I think you pulled it off.
0: Thanks. And obviously, you pulled it off as well. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you for this podcast series. I mean, honestly, I am so in love with. Everybody who is in the story collection, the is the not just to be a part of it and to be a part of the larger group, but also you volunteering to do this podcast and to engage all the other authors. I think you're like a dream come true. So thank you.
1: <laughs> That's the first time anyone's ever said that about me.
0: <laughs>
1: the author is me, Tone Malazo. The story is The Ginger Jar. The anthology is Running Wild Press. Anthology Stories Volume 2. The editor is Lisa Kastner. And that is that.